Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate fantasy theme weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... His uh, performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. My new book, Secrets of the Force, is now available in hardcover, digital, and audio from St. Martin's Press. And check out my other great oral histories with Ed Gross of Star Trek, The 50-Year Mission. So say we all, the complete oral history of Battlestar Galactica. And nobody does it better, the complete oral history of James Bond and Spymania. All available in hardcover, paperback, digital, and audio wherever you buy your books. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman, and we are the Inglorious Tragsperts. But today, we're Galactica Spurts because we like are going. <laughs> you don't like that. You don't like it. Because uh, <laughs> we are exploring a saga of a star world. Right. We are going on a lonely quest for a shining show known as Battlestar Galactica. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians, or the Toltecs, or the Mayans. Some believe that there may yet be brothers of man who even now fight to survive. Somewhere beyond the heavens. Indeed. The 1978 <laughs> version is the original Battlestar Galactica. And uh, uh, a couple years ago, I, I was lucky enough to sit down with the great Alan J. Levy, um, who has been a TV and film director for many decades. Um, but what's so interesting, as you will find in this discussion, 
is he's probably the only person on the planet who ever directed episodes of both The Invisible Man and The Gemini Man. Interesting. Yeah, it, it really well, is. He ben, talks ben about Murphy that. and uh, what's the David, David McCallum. McCallum. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because uh, uh, you know our younger audience and even some of our middle aged audience may not remember. They don't the even thing. remember him. I 19, barely remember. 1975, The Invisible Man premiered wow. for a glowing six episodes before it was canceled. Man, but, I loved I loved every episode of that crappy show. But they were like, <laughs> you know what, this Invisible Man thing. It, I think people like like invisible characters. We're sure, gonna, let's try it again. So they brought back Ben Murphy, and now he had a watch that turned him invisible yeah. in the Gemini Man. The slightest jar in that truck that Sam is driving, and he's going to be blown to smithereens. Sam's invisible powers won't save him this time. What's the problem, Lazy Rider? Buffalo, I got no brakes. I am coming down on a wing and a prayer. Fasten your seatbelts for high-speed thrills with Ben Murphy, Catherine Crawford, William Sylvester and Jim Stafford. There's a new invisible man in town, and he's riding with death. I and that lasted that even less episodes, yeah. five episodes, I think. Um, but uh, but you know he'll uh, he'll he talks about it, and of course, um, Alan went on to do episodes of Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman. It's all my fault. No, it's not. You didn't know. Somehow getting that PhD doesn't mean all that much anymore. We'll do all we can to help when the time comes. He's not dying is all that matters. Uh, but what we're, we're going to really talk about today, he has such wonderful stories, um, is uh, when... Um, uh, 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 the director of the original director, Alan J. Uh, Alan J. Richard Cola of right. um, Richard E. Cola, Richard E. Cola w- was fired from the uh, premiere, the, th- right. the premiere for going over schedule and over budget. Uh, they brought in Alan to finish the pilot. He directed actually more days on the pilot uh, than uh, uh, Cola did, Richard Cola did, but he was not credited. Uh, right. So to thank him, he ended up coming back and he did the two part episode. Gun on Ice Planet Zero. What's the matter? Something serious? Oh, no, no. We're just handing the safety of the entire fleet over to a bunch of murderers and cutthroats. Two, one, zero! There's not all that much difference between you and your fellow convicts and us. We are all living for the promise of freedom, and we're all threatened by a similar death. Which is basically a combination of Guns of Navarone meets Ice Station Zebra. Yeah. Uh, it's a really fun two-parter with Dan Hurley and Britt Eklund yeah. and uh, Boxy stowing aboard a shuttle, hiding. Uh, but uh, there's some great, uh, and it's great stories about that. I mean, because they were shooting the gun on Ice Planet Zero set on a Hoth-like world, actually before Empire, um, in the, 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 the dog days of summer in the valley. And he has great stories about them going into this like frozen soundstage uh, and then coming out and it's like, you know, 100 degrees. Um, but he also directed episodes of the Time Express with Vincent Price. In the course of your journey, events may change, people may change, you may change. But whatever happens when the trip is over, you must return to the Time Express. Now, is that perfectly clear? Yes. Have a pleasant journey. Um, another short-lived CBS series, uh, The Incredible Hulk. 
Um, I mean, he just anything scruples, Simon and Simon. He also has a great story, which, you know, we always have a little non sci-fi related nuggets to, to treat you with. Like we did with right. Joe D'Augusta and Bob, uh, Bob Butler. If you stick around for the whole show, he tells an amazing story about working with Frank Sinatra on Magnum PI, nice. which is worth the price of admission. So stick around because that's that's really great. Uh, and before we bring you Alan J. Levy, I just want to ask you, this is a show that doesn't get a ton of love, uh, Galactica 1978, particularly after the incredible success of Ron Moore's brilliant reinvention. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we grew up on Galactica. It was the yeah. sweet spot for us when it debuted in 1978. What are, you, what are your memories of Galactica? Battlestar Galactica? I, I remember watching the pilot uh, after it was delayed for... A while, um, and I loved it. I loved the music. I I, I was really into the uh, the music, and I got the album, uh, Stu Phillips' uh, 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 music for the uh, for the show. And uh, I, of course, I loved the visual effects. I loved the I loved the Cylon Raiders. I got the model kit for the Cylon Raiders and uh, built that, and that was just so much fun for me. Loved the Cylons themselves, um, and. I liked watching the show. I mean, the, you know, the 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 sad part about uh, Galactica is that it had what it has in common with uh, those nineteen uh, seventies Volvos is they're too boxy. Um, oh. It's, <laughs> oh. uh, but boxy was just completely annoying to me, uh, and uh, it wasn't a character that you know ostensibly he had been added so that. Uh, kids could identify with someone. No, you don't identify with the kid in the show. You identify with the adults because you want to be an adult and you want to, you know, you, you want to play. Starbuck. You want to play to be Starbuck. Absolutely, everybody want to be Starbuck. Um, the lovable except, rogue, except Apollo. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, I I thought it was a lot of fun, and of course, it came in between uh, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, so it was something to tide us over until you know until the real thing came up. Uh, so it, it was, uh, I, I loved it. I, I, uh, I didn't get any of the toys cause they were crappy. Yeah, they were Mattel. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, like I said, that, uh, that Cylon Raider, act, uh, 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 toy or the model kit rather the toy wasn't very good. It, it killed a kid. Yeah. Not really. Um, but, uh, but it was just so cool. And, uh, uh, I loved it. It was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I got an embarrassing admission. I think I have to say at the time, I think I kind of like Galactica better than Star Wars. I think partially because it was on every week, you know, right. and particularly those big epic miniseries that, you know, because originally Galactica was going to be a series of miniseries. And right. then ABC changed their mind and decided to make it a weekly series. So they scrambled to do these one hour episodes. If you look, the quality of the one hour episodes are much worse than the, um, the big two hours. It really is until the finale of all things are a, a hand of God uh, that they really kind of find their sea legs. And then it's all, all over. Yeah. Um, it, it has that wonderful ending where um, they picked up a transmission from earth and it turns out to be the, uh, the moon landing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Alan did spoiler it. alert. <laughs> well, again, 40 year old uh, spoiler. Okay. Um and it's so funny. I love that people are saying, where can I get Battlestar Galactica? It's not on Peacock or whatever. You know, how can I watch it? It's like there's a gorgeous Blu-ray set where they have um, all the episodes of that and Galactica 1980 
and the movie and, and the original and, format and uh, 16 by nine. So it's like why we would not pick that up. If you have any affinity for the show, I don't understand. So anyway, I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful set. Um, but without any further ado, um, we're going to bring you my conversation uh, with Alan J. Levy. And we'll be back afterwards to uh, wrap up. I know when you're, you've probably been interviewed about Galactica before, but I'd love to get a sense because obviously the industry has changed so much. Universal in the 70s and 80s was so interesting because everybody was sort of under contract and it was this, you know, um, this world unto itself in a sense. And, and tell me a little bit about, you know, just sort of getting started in the business and, and, and you know, what it was like for you before doing Galactica. And then, of course, working on, you know, you worked on, Six million dollar man and bionic woman. Yeah, I, my loyalty was toward Lindsay, and so I, I think Harv came to me and asked me if I would direct a, the opening two hour uh, six mil. And uh, of course, I knew Lee very well, and I went to Lindsay and asked her if she minded. There was a there there was a uh, a slight animosity between the two of yeah. them, um, and a jealousy basically. Well, not I won't say I shouldn't say that. Um, he was first, okay. Um, Lindsay never had any problem with Lee. Lee had a problem not with Lindsay per se, but with the show because it, it was a, a competing bionic show. Yeah. Okay, but he was never called the bionic man before Lindsay was named the bionic woman. So he always said, "I'm not the bionic man. I'm the six million dollars." Right, man. right. Okay. <laughs> and then they became friends, and we did a whole bunch of things together. But uh, then I went to Lindsay and said, "You know." do you mind if I direct the opening two hour? And she said, well, of course not. You know, she's, she's, that's the kind of person she is, but out of loyalty to her. And because I had directed every other, uh, bionic woman the first year. And then the second year did about two thirds of them. I mean, uh, uh, maybe one out of every three or four. Um, I, I felt that I should ask her if Mm -hmm. she minded. And we're still dear, dear, dear friends. She's, we were both, we were mostly pretty much like brother and sister. And then I went through a whole bunch of things with her. I went through that and a couple of, um, a couple of husbands, um, <laughs> a couple of movies, movies right. of the week, right. uh, Scruples. Oh, yeah. Of course. Many series. And, and, and now we're working on a feature together. Oh, so that's great. Hopefully. I uh, I remember seeing her a couple of years ago at the Saturn Awards, and she looked fantastic. She does look great. She 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 has aged naturally. She's a very spiritual gal, and she's just a, she's one of those unbelievably sweet human beings. She's writing her memoirs mm-hmm. with a guy by the name of Fred Fontana. You may know Fred. He was a producer at Universal, and he's oh, okay. done quite a bit mm-hmm. of stuff. A really nice guy. And they um, so she spent. They both have spent quite a bit of time here over the past couple of months. We looked at a whole bunch of bionic women's here in the screening room and uh, um, and scruples. We watched all of scruples again and, so, and a couple couple things like that. And they brought me a script, which is probably the most beautiful script I've read in ten or fifteen years, mm. at least. Uh, it's, it's gorgeous. Um, it's a European film. It's a European style right. film, you know, man and a woman type type thing, mm-hmm. and uh, it's called uh, Garden in Paris. Fred is trying to get it financed, and in this environment, it's you, not know easy. That, yeah, you know what yeah, that's yeah. like today. So 
Yeah, I do. If there's any chance of it coming through, then we'll go to Paris and shoot it. And if it doesn't, then uh, then it doesn't. Then it becomes a man-woman Pomona. Yeah. 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 So. But uh, it's, a, it's a good script. So, so... Um, where do you want me to go from? Yeah, there? so let's 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 talk about. So, I mean, obviously, Six Million Dollar Man and, and Bionicle were a huge zeitgeist show. I mean, they, for a while, that was all anybody was talking about. Then, you know, how did it feel to be on? You know, and then Scruples was huge for you as well. How you know, be on such, you know, big shows so early in your career? Um, yeah, I had to, before Scruples, I had directed the uh, the Immigrants, which mm-hmm. was. Um, uh, miniseries as well. I like I like uh, doing mi- uh, movies of the week and miniseries almost more than than episodic because in episodic the director is really not the molder of of the show. Yeah. The producers and the showrunner and the original writer and and the and the cast. Uh, whereas in Scruples and so on and I I took over Scruples four days into the shoot. There was another director who directed the first four or five days. So he had done a lot of the prep on the show. Mm-hmm. So I had to come in, and I, uh, the people at Warner Brothers were just great, and they they walked me through the sets that were designed and so on. And some of them I did not like, and for for a reason. And I sat down with them and told them why, and they totally agreed and rebuilt the sets. And uh, most of it was cast already. Mm-hmm. In fact, that as was Battlestar Galactica. Well, I was going to ask you about that because it's sort of history repeating. You know, how did you get this reputation as a guy who comes in and sort of, you know, saves the day in a sense when they're unhappy that, you know, this is not, this wasn't the first time you got the call to come in and, you know, when they fired Richard Cola to come in and take over Galactica. Well, there were a number of, uh, as you say, at that time, there were a, a number of people who were who were under contract. I was the only pure director under contract mm-hmm. Universal. There were producer directors, there were writer directors and so on and. And the, the executive producers who became directors and so on, uh, they were not hired as directors. They were hired as showrunners and producers and mm-hmm. so on. And I became their uh, fix-it man. Right. And but besides the shows, uh, I mean, I was sent down two or three shows into uh, Miami Vice because one of the directors who went down there just did not get the style of the show. Mm-hmm. So I was on a plane on Sunday night and started directing Monday morning. I read the script on the airplane. And and, and that was always very interesting right. and a great challenge. And I enjoyed that. Well, and you really have to be a chameleon because the aesthetic of Miami Vice is so different than Six Million Dollar Man or, you know, uh, one, of, one of the miniseries. And it's just like, I mean, it's so many different muscles, I would I would think. I mean. Yeah, but it was really fun. Mm-hmm. It was really fun to, to meld in that with that. I remember going down there and there was part of the script and I had just read the script that didn't make any sense to me. So I went to, uh, who was the exec producer of that show? Um, uh, Michael Mann. Michael Mann. So I went to Michael one night and I said to him, I have a problem with this one scene that we're doing tomorrow. Can you help me? He said, what's your problem? And I told him and he said, uh, he said, okay, come on in at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Seven o'clock tomorrow morning, he had me four pages. It was a rewrite on the, on the scene. It was just masterful, <laughs> as Michael Mann is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but and he was the one who thanked me. I, I thanked him, and he said, "No, no, no, thank you." And <laughs> it was really, you know, coming in late. He didn't know me. We had never met, and you know that was one one of many of the lovely things that happened. And that first year was a great year of television too. Oh, it was. I mean, yeah, the first year of Miami Vice it really was terrific. 
So tell me a little bit about how, uh, did you know Glenn Larson before you were approached for um, taking I knew line? of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the building and every once in a while, I'm, I'm pretty sure we, I, you know, I would say hi, Glenn. Sure, yeah. He'd say hi, didn't remember who the heck I was. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But he knew I was around. <laughs> um, um, Leslie Stevens, who was uh, part of the Galactica formation mm-hmm. crew. Yeah. yeah. Leslie was a mentor of mine. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Because um, Leslie's an amazing, I mean, talent. I mean, was an amazing talent. I mean, Outer Limits and just everything. Beautiful man. Yeah. A beautiful human being and a man of his word. And, and uh, let me go back because I want to extol some praises on him. Leslie came to me in about 1973 and said to me, I've got a pilot. I'm financing it myself. It was a talk show. Right. He said, um, I can't pay you. I don't have any money, but will you direct it for me? And we discussed what it was. And I said, I'd love to. And he said, I'll make it up to you someday. And I said, sure. You know, I didn't know Leslie, but you hear that all the time, right? So I directed the show for him. And um, the pilot didn't sell, but it was a very good, uh, a good interview. He was the master. He was the MC. He was the interviewer. And it was mostly a, a, a technical because he was he was into space, he was into alien beings, he was into all of that, and that's basically what it was was a was a, a, a forum for uh, intergalactic. Oh, really? <laughs> intergalactic. Okay, yeah. And uh, it, it was very interesting. It didn't sell, and we still made some contacts. Nineteen seventy-five, he called me and he said, "I'm part of the." original crew who put together Invisible Man. The pilot has sold, and I'm going to be on it as a consulting producer. And I want you to come over and meet Harv Bennett and go up and meet the guys at the Black Tower. And if they like you, I want you to direct the first episode. And if you do well, then you're part of the team. And if you don't, uh, good luck. I fulfilled my commitment to you. Yeah. So I <laughs> went over and I met Harv and I went up and met some of the other people and everything and, and Harv said, okay, direct the first show. And I did. And uh, then I did every other one. Mm-hmm. And, and Harv was a, a great mentor. But it was all because of Leslie. Mm-hmm. Leslie was the same one who did that same operation with Glenn. He, he When there was a rift between Richard and Glenn... Leslie came in and said, I, I think you should talk to Alan about taking over the show. Because he was only, he was 23 days into the, he, well, he, wasn't, he wasn't quite that. He was 20 some odd days into the show, directing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And so I came in and talked to, and I, he, he wanted me to take over the show. This is a complex story, I'll tell it to you because it's really fun. And I, I said, Glenn, I can't. I can't do it. And he said, why not? I said, well, because... I'm set to direct something else. And my parents, who have been my, my biggest supporters all of my life, are finally coming out from St. Louis to visit me next week. They're going to be here for a whole week. And that's more important to me than anything. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. I will give you my chauffeur and my car. And they will be like king and queen and chauffeured all around. They'll be brought to the studio. They'll have lunch here. They'll be on set with you. Any For a whole week, the car is yours. Everything else, you got to take the show over. And I thought, to have my mom and dad, who are sweet Midwestern folk, yeah. be squired around as though they were king and queen of, <laughs> of some small 
you know, foreign tributary, <laughs> tributary, that would really be fun for them. So I, I said, okay, I, I only need one thing, Glenn, from you. And that is to promise that you will support a dual credit. And he said, absolutely, I will go to the Directors Guild mm-hmm. and, and, and support that. Mm-hmm. So I took over the show. And uh, I, I, I called Richard after Richard had already been told that he was being let go. And I called him and I said, you know, I, ho- I hope you will come in. And, and you know, this, this was nothing that of my doing. Um, uh, I'll be happy to sit down and chat about where you were going with it so that I follow the same thing so that it doesn't look like uh, one person can't tell whether it was you directing a scene or me directing a scene. And I said, I hope you come in and edit your scenes. And he had already been doing a little bit of that. And he said, listen, he said, you know, just do your job. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about me. Um, you know, you have final cut of the picture as far as between you and I. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll come in and edit my stuff. And if you find out you want to alter it, don't, don't worry about it. Do it. So he's kind of menschy about the whole thing, to you at least. To me, it yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, and he didn't want anything more to do with Glenn. With Glenn yeah, sure. and Glenn the same. Yeah. So basically, I came in, I saw all the dailies, and I saw the cuts, what, what was cut so far, sure. which was about a little less than half of the show. And then I shot for, he shot totally for 25 days, and I shot for 27. Mm-hmm. But he prepped it. Yeah. At the end of the show, and I'll be real honest about it, and if Glenn was alive, I wouldn't even go into this right now, but Glenn, Glenn and I had a riff toward the end of the show because... Two things happened. Number one, he had me reshoot a number of, sh- of scenes that Richard had shot, which was okay. But then he had an, another list of shows that he wanted to do, a, a list of scenes that he wanted to do. And the, the tower put the kibosh on it and said, no, we spent enough money on this. Mm-hmm. $13 million. Yeah, it was the biggest, uh, most expensive pilot ever made. It yeah, yeah. yeah. three-hour movie that, that yeah. made its money back in, 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 uh, Theatrically. in the Orient. Yeah, yeah. You know, very quickly. And and so the tower um, pulled me off the show and said, "No, Glenn, you, Alan can't shoot anymore. He's already shot twenty-seven days. You, you know, put put the show to bed, and pulled me off the show and put me on what I was. They were talking to me about doing next. Glenn thought that was my doing, mm. and so he didn't talk to me for a while, for quite a while. And uh, when it came time to take the Negotiation to the, the Directors Guild, uh, he reneged. He mm-hmm. did not talk to them. He would not talk to them. He told me basically, you know, I didn't, I didn't say that to you, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And the Guild, because Richard had prepped the show and shot 25 days and I shot 27, they gave him total credit. Mm-hmm. I had a third of the residuals. They, they gave me a third of the residuals. But the credit was more important than the residual yeah, to me. Sure. Particularly because of the theatrical release, which was, uh, and it was so high profile at the time. It was, it was very yeah. much so. And, you know, and Glenn's, Glenn's main force through all of that was he wanted to beat Star Wars to the theaters because mm. he had read Star Wars. And uh, when Universal turned it down, he and Leslie Stevens got together and formulated Galactica. Mm-hmm. And and that's how he got the idea of making it, and that and he was determined to get it on before Star Wars came out. Interesting, because I know he tells this 
or told, I should say, this, this long story about how in the 60s he had this idea for a concept called Adam's Ark, and that was the inspiration for Galactica. But anybody who knows Glenn knows he usually gets his ideas from a movie or, you know, and then puts it through the blender and comes up with a TV show. So what you're saying is he had actually read the script of Star Wars and that inspired Galactica. Yeah, well, I... Whether whether it was the only inspiration of Galactica, right. I don't know. Glenn Glenn was a man of ideas. I mean, sure. he he came in from left field all the time with different different ideas, and then he was let go of most of the shows that he created. Yeah, right. You know, because he he was not that good a a continual producer, but he was a marvelous uh, idea man. He was a conceptualist, but not he could execute. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. he was excellent that way. Um, and you know, we finally patched things up on the baseball field. Oh, really? Because I was playing for Universal, and when he went over to when he went over to 20th Century Fox uh, with Lee to do what was the series that he no, did? Fall Guy, uh, fall, fall, fall Guy. Then we were on opposite sides of the teams who played baseball with each other. And so when Fox was playing Universal and I was playing on the Universal team and he was coaching the Fox team, uh, we finally made up because at the beginning of the game, I, I, I said, I've got a bet for you on this game. I said, if we win, you and I start talking because I never had him. You know? Right. And I said, and if you win, you don't never have to talk to me again. And that's just fine. <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> and he, he shook hands on that. Yeah. And at the end of the game, we won. And so, you know, bygones be bygones. And, and Glenn was Glenn. And if you knew Glenn, you, you accepted Glenn. Right, right. And that was it. <laughs> it, that's 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 so. Do you know? I mean, particularly since Richard and Glenn have both passed away, why Glenn was so upset with Richard that he wanted him off the show? No, never told me. Never, never, never said. No, he just um, basically he didn't define it. He did say that he wanted things done one way, and and Richard did them his way. Right. Yeah. That's that was it. Now, and now, what do you, I, I didn't say in what way. Yeah. I basically said, okay, make sure I know what you want. How difficult was it for you to come into a show as ambitious as Galactic was in the one to prep it? Obviously, the visual effects at the time were groundbreaking, you know, and uh, uh, it was, you know, hugely, uh, you know, logistically challenging uh, picture. And I imagine the ID stayed on from... Um, but uh, what would you know? What was it like for you? I mean, you talked about you looked at the dailies and everything else, but what did it involve? Was it very daunting, or were you able to just sort of slip in and do the job? Um, I was very fortunate. In the first day that I shot, it was an extremely difficult night. It was the um, the attack of the um, casino. Oh yeah, on Caroline. Sure. Oh my God. Are we getting this on the camera? People are running everywhere. Running all different directions. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is terrible. Um, the attack mm -hmm. at nighttime mm -hmm. with all the tanks outside oh, yeah. and everything else. And I was extremely lucky that that was it because that night went so well <laughs> that I was accepted into the crowd. Right, right. Okay. If it had just been a day of, you know, okay, over shoulders and close-ups. <laughs> right. But um, uh, it was it was a difficult night because I had the Cylons, I had the most of the cast, mm -hmm. I had Boxy, 
and so I was and tanks mm-hmm. and shoot 'em ups and, and exteriors and, pyro and, and the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. So it was the the it, and the monkey in the day. Too. Well, that's what's boxing, <laughs> right? Yeah, that was boxing. Yeah, and so I had the monkey. Yeah. So I had everything piled onto that first night, <laughs> and and that went very very well. Right. Thanks to all the people who were there. I mean, the special effects people, and and I met with them, and I spent the whole day, and we shot almost all night, if I remember right, because uh, we were outside of the studio. Mm-hmm. Inside was the was the uh, gambling parlor and then the doors opened up and they ran outside and then the tanks were coming and so on so it was um, I, a lot of people were pulling to make that night work what was nice too is you shot real night I mean a lot of those universal shows at the time they was all day for night you could I mean you watch it now and it's all like oh god this is you know and and, and but you shot night for night it's that's a cool scene well you had to do it because of the pyrotechnics mm-hmm. pyrotechnics don't show up very well in the daytime mm-hmm. I mean it, if a, if a pyrotechnic goes off daytime and you're shooting day for night, it's a little sparkler. Yeah, yeah. At nighttime, yeah. it lights up the entire field. Right. And that's basically what we did when the Cylons finally came outside. How, um, well, before I ask you about the cast and how they took to it and how maybe you dealt with, you know, the transition, let's talk for a second just because I, I do want to focus a little bit on, um, on Leslie and Leslie Stevens' involvement to that point. It's funny because in the Star Trek book, one of the people that really was important for us to talk about was a guy named Gene Kuhn, who had worked, run the show, uh, you know, and he doesn't get a lot of the attention he deserves. Uh, he was so brilliant and such a great guy. And, you know, he died of lung cancer in the early 70s. So he, when Star Trek became this huge thing, he didn't really get the love he, he was the producer, original producer wasn't he he, he was the, the second producer after a guy named uh, John Meredith Lucas not John Meredith Lucas after um, uh, John D.F. Black left he took over for a year and a half oh, okay. I just Trek. remember Kuhn's name and a lot that was great about Star Trek came from Kuhn I've always felt similarly because Leslie died young um, that a lot of his contributions have been lost. You know, Stefano always got all the attention for Out of Limits. And then even with Buck Rogers and Galactica, you don't hear much about Leslie. So I'd love you to talk. You, you told me a great story about how he mentored you initially and um, but and then brought you in on this. Can what, what was his involvement? And tell me a little bit about what he was like as a person and your dealings with it on Galactica, if you can recall. Well, he was, he was kind of, um, to a degree, suffocated on... You know, the one thing about Glenn is that Glenn was the star. Mm-hmm. And so he, there was a little bit of tension between the two of them because Leslie always felt that he had more of a, um, uh, a more of a contribution toward the original Galactica being, being done than what he'd had. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, because he didn't get co credit on anything. Right. He, he wrote, I think he wrote Gun on Ice Planet Zero. I'm not, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look. I know he had credit on one or two. Yeah. Episodes, yeah. Um, which was the, the second two hour that yeah. I directed. I think, he, I think he wrote that or co wrote it. Um, he, he was such a kind, soft man. And he was so brilliant. I mean, I don't know if you've read any of his books. I haven't. But they're, they're, they're almost a they're almost a Bible on on intergalactic beliefs, alien beliefs, and so on. There, because he was a I guess I mean he was a big sci fi fan, but it sounds like he was also very much into 
and and this was uh, a huge thing in the seventies. That whole chariot of the gods, Eric Von oh, yeah. and the, the ancient astronauts. Uh, Absolutely, and he believed it all. And okay. if you sat down and talked about <laughs> yeah. it, he was he was a very quiet man. Mm-hmm. He was a very quiet man, um, a, a big man, a ruddy complected and soft spoken. But uh, you listened to every word that he said because he was absolutely that brilliant. He really was. My dealings with him were basically as as a mentor that I owed a great deal of, of thanks to. Mm-hmm. Um, he never really got involved on set. Right. He would come down and visit every once in a while. But Glenn was the one who really ran the show. And Glenn hired the... You know, most of the people who were working on the show were... People that Glenn had chosen, not not necessarily uh, Leslie. Yeah, you know, I'll never forget. I never did forget Les, and I won't ever forget. He was he was really a good human being, a very talented writer, mm-hmm. and um, um, it was very sad when he went. And I did see him before that. How did he, I don't remember? How did he die? Was it cancer? Or? I, I you know what I don't really remember. Yeah. I think I isolated myself sure, sure, from yeah, it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the um, the cast. I mean, when you take over something midway, obviously, you know, there's a certain awkwardness to it. Um, how did you approach the cast and what were your impressions? I mean, Lauren Green is the patriarch of that family, much as he was, in, you know, the Cartwrights. Um, and I heard, you know, I know uh, he, he was interesting to deal with a little bit. Um, That's possible. I never found that. Um, he was always there. We became friends, and he was always there with a positive outlook for me. Okay. Totally. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, the papa, the papa of the gang, mm-hmm. you know. Number one uh, on the culture. Terry was second, mm-hmm. and the two guys. And, um, and I only did a couple of scenes with Jane Seymour. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the first one, the first night. Uh, the, the escape there of, of Boxy and, and the kid and everything. Um, and then Jane and I became friends, and then I directed, uh, I think it was 14 or 17 of her shows uh, later. I didn't find any problem uh, with either the crew or, or the cast. I don't remember the specifics, so, and sure. I don't want to... I don't want to make up a story, but everybody seemed to accept it. Now, I don't know what their relationship was with Richard and nobody said, and that was none of my business. Sure, right, yeah. But I kind of got the feeling that they were ex- very accepting to having somebody in on blood. who understood them and the yeah. problems and all that kind of stuff. How 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 is your relationship with Ben Coleman, the DP? Um, okay. Ben was a difficult man in that... Um, but also very contributive. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had, I won't say run-ins, I've, I've, I've had several disparaging happenings with uh, several DPs only because I was a, a, a cameraman early in life. And I always like to set up my own shots. And so grabbing the camera, and I, mean, <laughs> I was doing the six mil, yeah. and um, I won't mention any name. Well, no, it was Bud Thackeray. It's okay. Bud's, Bud's gone, and his his son was a good friend of mine, and he was then my DP on on the immigrants. His son was, and uh, the first day on on Six Million Dollar Man, we're we're in the basement of the Black Tower shooting something. <laughs> I don't know, and so I rehearsed the scene, and then I said, "Okay, guys, um, would you mind wheel the camera over here?" 
they did, and I hopped up on the camera. And then back at me, I said, I heard, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and I said, well, I was just going to kind of suggest setting up the shot. And he said, I'm the DP here. I'll set up the shot. What do you want? And I said, okay, we'll do this and do that. And I said, fine. And he, he popped on the, on, the, on the camera, and he set it up just like I asked him to set it up. And he gets off the camera and he says, now get on the camera and see if that's what you want. <laughs> so we got a long time. Well, Benny, I, I, uh, Benny was a character, but he, and he had his own way of doing things. And he was very protective of his crew. And the operator on that show, uh, and we're still friends, uh, was the best operator I had ever worked with. He was I could set up a shot that was almost impossible to do, and he would just make it look like cream and butter. I mean, it was perfect. So he, he appreciated, uh, Ben appreciated that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I enjoyed Ben. He, he, was, he was very adaptive. Um, if, if, this, if the shot didn't work for lighting-wise, then he, he would always come to me and say, you know, do you mind if we do this instead? And I'd say, no, no not, not at all. Right. You know, and he'd say, it's easier to light and faster to light, and I think it's going to look better. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was very nice that way. Yeah, because that, that era at Universal was you had sort of these guys who'd been there for 50 years, you know, and, and then the Spielbergs and you guys who are, you know, the young Turks now. Who, and I know that there was always a little bit of conflict between the guys. This is the way you do it because we've been doing it this way for 50 years. And then the guys with the new ideas who are trying to sort of push the envelope. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's what filmmaking is all about, uh-huh. you know. Um, in the middle of my career at Universal, we, sw- we swayed away from directing television. And started directing movies. You know, I mean, today look at look at. I mean, there's no, there are very few TV shows out there now. We we shot head close-ups and uh, and masters yeah. and over shoulders. Yeah. And today it's a feature world. Mm-hmm. Uh, every TV show today is is a feature film. Yeah, and we we began that transition in there. And wow. I think Galactic was one of those that did that. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I remember it was probably 10 years ago, we did a screening of um, May 15 of, of, of Galactic at the Egyptian, um, at the Cinematheque, and watched on the big screen. And it looks phenomenal. Yeah, it does. I mean, it just looks phenomenal. And it holds up. You know, a lot, a lot of television from that era does not hold Even stuff, you know, I, that I loved, you know, is hard to watch now. But Galactica, you know, looks fantastic. I've got, to, I've got to finish one part of a story, whether Please. you want it or not. I think it's just kind of fun. When I accepted the job, and I was on set for a couple of days before my parents came out, and then they came out over a weekend, and then on Monday, uh, of course, I, I, Glenn's limousine was there and picked him up at the airport and the whole bed, and I was shooting. They picked him up at the airport and brought him to the stage. Now, I was shooting at that time in... Um, what was it called? It was in the hangar where all of the... Uh, oh, the flight deck? Yeah, uh, and all the, the flight vipers deck. are. And yeah. I, had two, I had two vipers down here and another viper up center. And I was on a crane, huge crane. And we were setting up a shot. There were probably, I don't know, maybe 40 extras around. around you know, sure. All the engineers and everything. And uh, 
uh, the two main guys were were getting into their vipers and so on. And you're like Cecil B. DeMille up there. Huh? You're like Cecil B. DeMille I was up like, there. I was, having, I was having such a freaking ball. You couldn't, you know, it was marvelous. And the crew and everybody else. And, and we had just done a shot and I'm setting the next shot. And out of the corner of my eye, I see the stage door open. And um, the, the driver ushered my mom and dad into the scene. Now, we had the whole stage. Yeah. I mean, this, this was huge. And I saw them come in, and I took maybe another 10 seconds to talk to, the, the, um, to talk to Benny. And I said, Benny, is this okay for you? He says, yeah. I said, okay, everybody, take 10, get me down off of here. And I came down, and they let me off, and I ran over and hugged and kissed my mom and my dad. And... Laura Green walked over to my father and I, and said, "If a if a guy who has eighty people or ninety or a hundred people working says everybody take ten, my parents are walking in the door and I'm going to go over and give them a hug and a kiss." He said, "Then I got to meet." <laughs> and he came over and he and my dad never they didn't split the <sighs> entire week. That's great. It was so marvelous. So he said to me, he said. You know, let me finish the story because I'm not sure if you're going to use it. I can tell you without a d doubt that story will be in the book because <laughs> that's the kind of color when, you know, I'm sure you've done interviews about this before and you talk about being hired on the show and that's all interesting. But it's that kind of you were there just I, that kind of color. I love. I mean, that to me is like, a, you know, it's the kind of great. It's a great story. It says a lot about you, but it's also the filmmaking process. I love it. You know, and that, and that tells you more about Lauren Green than you say. He was great to work with. I really enjoyed Lauren. You know, I loved Lauren. <laughs> I loved Lauren. And he spent every moment that he wasn't on camera. He spent sitting with my folks you know, for the entire week. And, and they weren't there every day, but most, sure. most days they were. Well, they had the limo. They had other things to do. Yeah. yeah. And then um, uh, I've had a place on Maui for a long time. And, and Lauren, when he was ill, vacationed over in Maui. And so we spent some time with him over there as well. He, he was that kind of a gentleman. Mm -hmm. He was just an, incredible. That's really great. Was. I dearly love the man. I mean, yeah, I mean, Larson used to tell the story. The reason he put him in Galactic in 1980 is he didn't have the heart not to include him, even though it made no sense, but that he loved the show so much that he just felt like you had to keep Lorne because he didn't want to tell him that I'm not going to use you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, he was one of the really super folk. Had you, um, I mean, at that point, I'm sure you'd seen Star Wars. Um, did you have... Uh, a sense that this was, you know, going to be Star Wars for television and, 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 and that you, you know, how to make it different, you know, how to make it its own, put its own distinct imprintor so it didn't just seem as though it was sort of a warmed over retread of something. Because ultimately there ended up being that lawsuit where Fox was suing, you know, Universal over it being too similar to Star Wars. <clears throat> well, it, you know, it was, it was the time to bring that subject up because it, you know, more publicity, you know, spell my name right mm -hmm. type thing. Um, whether whether they whether they really believed that it was a takeoff or, or whatever. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you can't sue Roy Rogers for for being a cowboy yeah, after yeah. Gene uh, Autry, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and this was a, a different kind of a show. He, he put Cylons in there because there were there were no Cylon type people that, that were. Uh, in 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 Star Wars, right, right. Um, so there was a real threat there. 
standards and practices, you could kill as many of those as you wanted without having to worry about them coming down on you for too much violence, too. Yeah. Uh, at the time, I mean, uh, so do you recall much about, um, I guess, Richard and Dirk, you know, working with them at all? Mutt and Jeff, yeah. Mutt and Jeff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were, they were both nice guys. They were competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if Dirk had four words more, <laughs> Richard would say, "Why don't I get those four words?" You know? <laughs> but it was never. They, they, I think they liked each other. Right. And they were very respectful of each other. But there was a little, there was a little competition sure. there. Well, I mean, Richard was coming off a hit show with Streets of San Francisco, yeah. and you can see why these guys would bump heads. And then Dirk had the more fun role. I mean, he, had, you know, Richard had more of the thankless role. I mean, the stoic hero who didn't get the jokes, whereas Dirk got the girls and got the jokes and had all the fun. He was the lighter character, you know. No, you know, but he was the character that everybody wants to be, kind of this carefree, I have no problems, I have no cares in the world. Yeah. As you say, he had the girls, he had the romances, he had the fun. Uh, if it had been 20 years later, he would have been the one in the corner smoking dope. I guess the, the girl who got sort of sidelined, do you have any, you remember uh, Marin Jensen at yes, all? Yeah. You know, what were your feelings? Marin was a very sweet, sweet young gal. Um, she was a model, and she had never acted before, uh, at least not to any note that I know. Yeah, sure. But she was always very receptive and always there, a, a very pretty gal. Her presence never became a central focus for anybody, you know, um, whatever that had. I mean, it was a, it was a minor role yeah. to a certain degree. Uh, and she never did anything afterwards that I know of. No, Maybe she much. did. Not much. I think that she went back to Hawaii, which I guess is where she's from. Is, was that right? Yeah. I mean, I think she did a, a movie for Wes Craven and a couple of things, but not a lot. And then that was the end of sort of. She her. was a lovely, lovely gal. There, there was nobody on the entire um, cast was any kind of a yeah. problem that I remember. None of them. Well, you were there. I mean, also at the beginning when everyone's excited and the, the potential is. You know, everyone can't. Well, on the on the second movie, I had the same crew. No. Well, I didn't have the same crew. Benny left. Okay. And I brought in Enzo Martinelli, mm-hmm. who I learned more from than any other DP I've ever worked with. Enzo was just fabulous. I had worked with him on Invisible Man and then Gemini Man. Okay. And we were really good buddies. And so when when um, when the, when um, Gun on Ice Planet Zero came around. Larson asked me, he said, you know, who, who I've got to replace Benny because Benny went over to something else. I think he went over to um, to the other space show that, that Glenn had. Oh, Buck Rogers. Buck Rogers. Yeah, yeah. And he said, who do you want? And I said, Enzo Martinelli. I mean, Enzo, Enzo started making movies before the laboratories and before sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really knew how to make a movie and fast. Right. And just marvelous. The fastest setup man I've ever worked with. I think, if I got the chronology right, so the pilot was shot, which you did, or which ended up later on getting a theatrical release here, but got theatrical around the world. So then they shot Lost Planet of the Gods, which was a two-hour, and then you did Gun and Ice Planet Zero. There must be some mistake. Most of these people are criminals. They're uh, they're aboard the prison barge. You have your orders, Lieutenant. Aye, sir. 
Dope. What's the matter? Something serious? Oh, no, no. We're just handing the safety of the entire fleet over to a bunch of murderers and cutthroats. Was it the second movie? I think it was the second. It was certainly in, in air dates, it was. So I don't know. I thought I thought we shot you a second, shot it. but I I may be wrong. I mean, you you know the chronology yeah, probably better I mean, there than was, I do. There was um there was one because then that was when they killed off Jane Seymour in the in the second movie. Okay, because I know the the plan had originally been to do these as two hour uh, movies a week, you know, like every couple of months, and then it changed. They were so happy with the pilot that uh, it ended up being no, we're going to make it a weekly series. Which, uh, which is why the first couple were these two parters, which would have been MOWs if they had just aired yeah. two hours. Yeah. Um, You're probably right. And thank you for correcting me. No, no. It's, uh, tell me, um, got a nice plan here. Obviously, you had patched things up over the baseball game. Uh, with Glenn, so you, you brings you back for uh, Gun Eyes Plan Zero, which is sort of uh, you know a little Ice Station Zebra, a little uh, Dirty Dozen. I mean, you got it all on that uh, episode, and then a ton of snow. That was interesting because um, I'm trying to remember his name right now. Darn it, he was the son of a director, and he was head of production up in the office. And a great guy, loved him definitely. He was up in the Black Tower. I'll think of it in a minute. Okay. Anyway, we shot one day on stage. No, we didn't shoot at all on stage. And I called up stairs and I said, guys, we've got people in parkas and, and we've got snow coming down. It wasn't water snow. It was uh, plastic snow. Mm-hmm. I said, but I've, I've got my crew, my cast in parkas, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to be able to shoot for maybe five minutes before everybody's Native drenching wet. Yeah, yeah. And I've got to get another, another air conditioner on set. We've got to bring it down to 40 degrees. And they said, nah, you're not going to need it. It, it. We're fine. You're at 70, you're at 65 degrees right now with this one big, big, Bellamy, Earl Bellamy. Okay. And so the next day I'm was shooting. Was he Bill Bellamy's, uh, not Bill Bellamy, uh, Ralph Bellamy's son? Ralph, not Ralph Bellamy, uh, no. Um, there was another Bellamy who was a director. Oh, okay. And I'm shooting on set and sure enough, we have to dab every, every 10 minutes. Right. People are just, so I called Earl and I said, Earl, Please come down here as soon as you can. I've got a big problem, and I don't want it to go any farther than this, and you can help me. And he came down on the set, walked on the set, and saw that everybody was just dripping wet. Well, we had a, we, the next morning, we had two, two um, big air conditioners on the set, <laughs> got it down to 40 degrees, and we could shoot. But, I mean, we were on that set for, for days and days and days nice. because all the snowy... Um, the snowy backdrop was all there and the snow, I think I was probably there for, I think that was about a 24-day schedule and we were probably there 12, 12, 14 days. Wow. And uh, so the, the cooperation on the show was immense. Yeah, well, you're doing Guns and Arrow for TV there. Yes, I mean, it was. was. I, I mean, it's crazy. It I mean, and, and, and it, again, another show that totally holds up I mean, you know, for the most part, I mean, the scope of it is, I mean, it's amazing. And people weren't doing stuff like that for television no. at the time. No. Nothing close. I mean, everything was universal backlot. I mean, this was like crazy good stuff. And, um, you know, and then you had Britt Eklund in it, too. Do you remember anything about, and Dan O'Hurley, who I remember was really good, Richard Lynch? Yeah. Um, Dan became a friend, and uh, I loved him dearly. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, Lynch was fun. He was a cut-up. He was just marvelous. Uh, we had Denny. Um, Denny and Britt were were the the two people from the other who lived on the planet. I forget. Denny 
You can probably I can look it up. Anyway. Yeah. Um, there were some good people on the show. Yeah. There really were, and we had a, we had a good time with it. Um, one thing about Glenn is that he did know how to cast. Mm-hmm. He he did know people. He did know um, the people who had the sparkle to bring in. Well, even if you look at that pilot, I don't know how much if this was Richard or your stuff, but I mean Ray Milland. Lou Ayers, I mean, it was like, I mean, all these legendary people sort of at the end of their career. But I mean, I mean even you look at that poster, I mean, you know, it's incredible, legendary people that are, you know, uh, you know, Wilford Hyde White. I mean, just really impressive. Did you work with Ray Milland at all? Do you no. remember? No, that was all. I think I did one scene with him, yes. Right. Yes, of course I did. He was the one who uh, came in. The first night, he came in and said, "Everybody out!" Oh, remember? Yes, I, I actually—that was it. <laughs> Wait, I'm in charge. It was the Al Haig thing. I'm in charge here, yes. and then they come to silence. He's in charge. Yeah, yeah that was. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of yeah. that. But when you, all of a sudden, I, I don't know. This was a long time ago. I don't know how I'm remembering all this stuff. You know, maybe I don't have to worry about my Alzheimer's. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but and, and Ray was fun. Mm-hmm. He was fun. I find most of the older. I mean, I've I've been so fortunate to to direct uh, a lot of people who were really big stars at one time, right. and they're just they're amazing because they're old Hollywood, and um, uh, I think they're thankful for what they've done, and and they've been in the business longer than I have by right. far. Well, do you, tell me about that. Um, I mean, again, the, the set, the bridge set was one of, uh, it was the most expensive set ever built for television at the time, the Bridge of the Galactica. But maybe not ideal for filming because the way it was platformed up and the way it was designed. Do you remember much about shooting on that set? And, yeah. I mean, it looked great on film. Yeah, I said to Benny, I said, um, I, I said, I tell you what I want to do on this set. I want an Atlas Crane. Mm-hmm. And so they brought in a crane, and I shot that set with a crane because I could take the crane, and we took the one wall out on the on the stage left side, and we stuck the crane in there on a on a big platform, and so it could come in, and I could go from the bottom all the way up to the top, and all the way up to the map, and everything all the way, and I shot eighty percent of that from the crane. And it really, it sped it up. And I don't know what they did before. I, th- uh-huh. I You know what? I don't think, Richard, that, that set was not complete until oh, I was on. Until you came on. So you, then you shot when it doubled for the other Battlestar, too, the Atlantia. Because there's that stuff where, the sh- where again, I'm getting into minutiae now. You're probably like, what is he talking about? But it doubled for, you know, a different Battlestar that was destroyed. Same set. They just, you know, uh, and that, but that got blown to you know, gets blown up. Uh, obviously, it didn't get blown up. But um, do, do, do you recall that at no. all? Okay, that, that wasn't in my episode. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's 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 um because it, at the Pearl Harbor in space, when every all the ships get blown up, yeah, the the the, the commander of or the head of the Federation or the the Lou Ayres role, he's on the bridge of his ship. Which you know, it's the same set. You know, it's the Atlantis. I don't remember. So I, don't remember I was just that. wondering. Oh, um, <laughs> are you kidding? I mean, no, no one should know this stuff. I mean, this is forty years ago. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I was about eight years old, but I'm. You know. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, you know, we we meet in the schoolyard the next night and talk about Galactica. We were obsessed with it. Um, I mean, I remember that when the three hour your three hour aired. I'm sure you remember this too. 
two hours into it, oh, it may not have affected you on the east coast, on the west coast. On the east coast, Jimmy Carter announced the Camp David peace accords. So two hours into it, it's interrupted for a special bulletin. Oh, really? And you know, we're kids. We're supposed to be going to sleep, right? And then, you know, they interrupt Battlestar Galactica, which we've been looking forward to like all summer. And we're saying, no! And it's like, our parents are, you really need to go to sleep. And you know, we don't have VCR, no VCRs yet. It's like, I'm not going to sleep until the show is over. And we sit there and it's like, get off TV, Jimmy Carter. We need to see how Galactica is. <laughs> so I remember, I think it's the latest I'd ever been up because by the time it came back, it was like, you know, 12 o'clock at night that it finished on the East, on the East Coast. And we all were exhausted at school the next day. I mean, this is what I remember, you know, because we had to stay up and watch the end of Battlestar Galactica. Well, it, you know what? It, I can't really remember a show that was more fun to shoot. Mm-hmm. Because there were so many aspects of it. And Doug Knapp, who was this operator that we got along so well. I mean, um, my being an operator, I would set things up and say, Doug, is that okay? And he'd go, well, well of course. And he, he did. Sh- he still talks about it, and he's still a friend of mine. And he said, you, you set up shots that, that, were, that people didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. especially." And that's where I fell in love with him, was on, on the... Um, uh, on on the main deck set, set because right, on the bridge yeah. uh, I would I would start on a long lens way down here on the crane and then and then come all the way up winds all the way up to the top and he was just so perfect that we could almost do anything that we designed right, right. You know? and that was fun to invent that kind of well, stuff. Well, and you had the resources too. On most shows, they'd say, "Really?" But yeah. you know, they were throwing money at this thing left and right. They were, they were. You know, it, it ended up being a fifty-some-odd day shoot. Did, did you know that they were going to release it theatrically when you were shooting it, or 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 that came later? Yeah, no, I think I did. Mm-hmm. I think that's why you wanted the credit, too. I would imagine. Well, yeah, yeah. sure, um, but we weren't paid theatrically, right? Oh, yeah, and and so so that there was a rumor going around that they wanted mm-hmm. to re- release it. That Glenn wanted to release it before Star Wars, mm-hmm. and he wanted to release it in Japan, I think, or in Asia. Right, right. I don't think it ever was released over here as a feature. It, it was, but after the show was canceled. Uh-huh. Um, so it had already aired on TV, but then they put it on sense around here, and it actually did okay. Um, and so when they did Buck Rogers, they said, okay, we're going to put it out first. And then they put Buck Rogers out in theaters like in July or August before it premiered on TV in September, and that did okay. But yeah, Galactica did okay in theaters, even though it had already aired on television. It was yeah. unprecedented. Yeah. Um, but you know that was the gimmick sense around. They had you know the subwoofer there. But Universal could not admit that it was a that that they were going to release it as a feature. Otherwise, everybody's your residuals would kick up. Oh, residuals and and salaries. Yeah, the minimums. Yeah. You know. Um, how come after? I mean, uh, was it just after Gun and Ice Planet Zero? You, you moved on to other things or, or was there a falling out or just moved on or you didn't come back to the show? Well, there point. was a falling out on Glenn's part, but the funny thing was is that what, for some reason, oh, 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 my agent um, um, had already gotten a guarantee that if I took over the, the, the pilot that I would have another movie of the week. Oh, okay. So uh, and I didn't think of that, and, and that was I didn't even think of that until just this moment. Right, remember oh, okay. that that was an obligation, and it was in the contract. Oh, okay. So whether Glenn and I had a falling out on the first show or not, if he if he said you know you you um, 
he basically accused me of running away from the show mm -hmm. and because Universal wanted me to, to shoot something else. But then when I came back and did Ice Planet Zero, it was somewhat patched up. There. Sure, sure. Did uh, The one person we didn't talk about is John Dykstra. And oh, I wonder, obviously, that. you know, that was such a huge part of the show and, you know, you were breaking new ground in visual effects and I imagine you relied on him a lot and uh, in terms of... Uh, I mean, there's a lot of matte paintings. There's a ton of special effects. And I guess all, most of the special effects they did were for Gun and Ice Planet Zero and the pilot and one other. And then it was mostly stock footage for the rest of the show, except for things here and there. Yeah. Um, John's still a friend. And we, we see each other. We see each other uh, at, at Super Bowls. Oh. <laughs> we have Super Bowl parties. Right, right. And I see him. Um, uh, John and I became very close because I understood, I understood and appreciated what he was doing. And on set, he was just so bloody helpful. It was unbelievable. I mean, he was right there all the time. I mean, he was an active producer on mm -hmm. set, even though he was doing all of, of the, uh, uh, the effects with um, the name of the company. Apogee? Huh? Apogee? Was it Apogee? Yeah. Well, Apogee was his spinoff, but it was originally something. Maybe it was Apogee. Because he left ILM. Yeah, ILM. Uh, uh, yeah, 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 and then and started Apogee. And started Apogee. Yeah. And part of his falling out, I guess, with Lucas was because he did Galactica. That's right. Mm -hmm. And they moved from the original, and then he, I think he formed, he got a place out in Burbank, and that's where Apogee was. Right. And I used to go over there, and his work was amazing, and he was just terrific. I think that some of the, a lot of the visual effects are better than stuff in Star Wars. I mean, the and the designs, I mean, the Viper, the Cylon, right, the Cylon base stars, I mean, all that stuff is fantastic. That attack initially on uh, at the beginning, the Pearl Harbor scene, I mean, that stuff's gorgeous. And the designs are just stunning. They they were, and remember that there, there was no digital work then. Yeah. I mean, today it's all digital. Yeah. I mean, if you saw Rogue, I don't know if you saw Rogue. Yeah, sure. That's all digital, and he was working with models, and blue and 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 blue screen, green screen. Uh, yeah, it's all and the miniatures were gorgeous. Oh God, were they? And huge, not not too many. Um, yeah, Rogue One has a little gun and ice Planet zero on it with all that dirty dozen stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it did. In fact, I, it was funny because when we got out of there, uh, we were talking to some people, and I said, you know. The, the Death Star was uh, it was somewhat lifted from from uh, Gun on Ice Planet Zero. It's so funny. I hadn't thought about it until we just talked about it. But if you look at Rogue One, it really is Gun on Ice Planet Zeroes. A bunch of criminals get sent to destroy a super weapon. That's right. And then they you know they go on this on these travels and then they and it was the focus of the super weapon uh, on that big dish that came out and. They had they had the the long tunnel, right? And I had the if you remember the, the I think there were four of them these gigantic uh, oh, silver that came up that came yeah, up like and charged, and, charged yeah yeah up, that was that was right to create the weapon the beam that that's would right. yeah 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 very some some pretty good similarities there <laughs> yeah it's so funny because I would have never thought of it until you mentioned it but it's 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 actually. I, I, it's very it's surprisingly similar. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Uh, there were a lot of similarities between the two. I thought I'm, maybe I should. Of course, Lucas backed away from it. He didn't like that. He didn't like what Disney did with, with the script. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have all, and you had all the clones too. So you had all that, um, and that kind of that always complicates and slows things down. 
because then you have all the identical in Gunnanize Planet Zero, the identical um, like they were different series, so they would you would have to do um, split screen. Oh yeah, and shoot yeah, a lot yeah, of that. yeah. The people, yeah, yeah. yeah. The people were um, were identical, and and that always is you know complex um, and time consuming. Well, one of the reasons that that Leslie brought me on to Invisible Man is that I was known as somewhat of a maven in in live special effects. Mm-hmm commercials and, and and television. I was involved, uh, have an engineering background, and I was involved. I, I owned part of Compact Video at that time, and there were some other tra- image transform and so on. So I had a, 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 a special effects background to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And then he, he said to me, you know, come over and do Invisible Man because you know the technology. We're going to be doing some blue screen, mm-hmm. and you know what that technology is. And then the fun that I had on that show that kept developing, and that's why I think Dykstra and I got along so well, is that I made it a point in Invisible Man and Gemini Man to invent an invisibility something or other in every single show that had never been done before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that it was something brand new. So Claude Rains, yeah. Yeah. Um, but for instance, I was on David one time and um, he was, forgot exactly what it was now, anyway, and we actually saw him put on the David mask. And everybody said, how did you do that? Nobody knew how I did it. And that, right now I can't remember how I did do it. <laughs> but uh, he went from invisibility to visibility in one shot, uh, which today is done digitally. Sure. But at the time it was... Um... But at the time it was... So uh, when John said, what about doing something like this? I go, you know, let's figure out how to do that. And Mm -hmm. he would always come up with the idea. He was so brilliant. So I I have to ask you, you know, when your parents heard you were not going to pursue your electrical engineering degree and were going to become a Hollywood director, what was their response? Well, uh, I started making films at 15. That was my first film. And so I knew what I wanted to do already. Um, I had dabbled in, in... sound recording and photography and everything and um, I saw a movie in 1953 no 50 1950 uh, called Good News with June Ellison, Peter Lawford and that whole crew and I came home and I said to my folks I said if I just saw a movie last night that was made everybody in the audience just so happy. And if that's what movies do, that's what I want to do. And I started studying on my own and uh, made my first half-hour comedy when I was 15. And so I knew what I wanted to do. When I was in high school, I made, before I got to Northwestern, I had made 43 pictures of, of various kinds. Now, right. I'm, now, I'm not talking about big pictures. Yeah, no, but the kind of Super A, 16 millimeter, I guess. 16 time, millimeter yeah. sound. Uh, made some commercials for people who, like the National Safety Council, who couldn't afford, you know... It, it, expensive. Expensive yeah. productions, and yeah. they were simple, and I could make them and so on. But my dad was the one. I, I was always tinkering, and my dad was an engineer. And so he said to me, he said, you know... He, I know what you want to do, but I, I, I ask you and I implore you, get get a background in engineering, which is what you love, so that if it doesn't work out in show business, you've got something to fall uh, back. Yeah, yeah. 
and wow. and I've kept up my electrical engineering. You can see by this. Uh, oh my you know, God! I, I, I build all of these. <laughs> I build a lot of things. This whole house is uh-huh. controlled by that. And wow! And I built this whole screening room. There was no second floor under this. Really? No. This is all. Oh, look at that! I had I had a framer. Right. Because I don't know anything about sure. framing. Right. But once it was completed and then designed Isn't that fascinating? it. I update it all the time. Anyway, so it was my dad who who really said, my dad had an unfortunate thing in college. He was in engineering school in college. My grandfather was in real estate, and he was of the old school. And when my dad was a junior in, in college, uh, when he was a sophomore in college, he came home, and my grandfather said to him, if you want to go back to college, you transfer out of engineering school and go into business school and then come into business with me. Otherwise, I won't send you back to college. Mm. And he always regretted that. And he always said, and I'll never do that to you. But he said, get an engineering background. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what happened. Wow. He, and then and they were sitting in the living room of the doctor who lived five houses away from me in 1951, who whose house he gave me, the doctor, to make my first movie in. And uh, so they've been there the whole time. I remember, I think it was somebody who was, it was Terry, Terry McDonald who became a story editor long after you left on the show. But he said, I guess one of the big sets was the Planet, uh, Phantom of the Opera set uh, for Galactica. Um, I don't, and I, I forget which set it was, but I know he said, you know, it's like you, there were certain things you couldn't touch because that is considered so sacred on the Universal lot. So that, you know, if you look behind, the set, you would see all this stuff from the Phantom of the Opera. I don't know if you remember any of that at all. On the, on, oh, 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 oh. On the... On, on stage one. Maybe uh, it was stage one. Stage one was the original Phantom of the Opera oh, okay. stage. Yeah. And it was the oldest one there. And it actually had a control room, which no other stages had, where they controlled all the lighting and everything else. Yeah, I, I did see it. Do you remember what we, what you were shooting on stage one for Galactic? What was, I think, oh, you know what, maybe it was the launch bay was on. It might have been... I don't remember. This is I, I interviewed him a while ago. No, it wasn't a launch bay. Oh, okay. The launch bay took the whole thing. Oh, okay. That was when my folks came in. No, we were down on like 20, 22. Oh, okay. Something like that. Yeah, do you remember? I mean, you must have had a lot of real estate at Universal. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, you had the bridge. You had a lot of standing sets. And then, you know, all the Carillon stuff, which was, you know, huge as well. Even with the I map I think paintings. there were four or five stages, mm-hmm. which is wrong. In fact, at that time, Universal was so busy that we had to rent a general service studios over on Los Palmas oh, mm-hmm. because there were too many shows and we didn't have enough stages. Right. Interesting. I didn't know that. Um, any interesting stories about either the prosthetics or working with the Cylons? I know they were always really hard to light because of the reflections and the silver and um, keep these guys on their feet also because sometimes they couldn't really see in the costume. Any interesting anecdotes or things you remember about any of that? Uh, not really. I do, I do remember that, that Glenn set up, or somebody, whoever was line producer, I think who was line, who was line producer on that show, but they had to set up a repair set somewhere because we, we had a lot of pyrotechnics yeah. on these guys. Yeah. And we would burn a lot of the plastic uh, things, and they were getting expensive as hell. And there were a lot of them. And so I remember that we we had to be very careful about putting on the pyrotechnics for a while because we were destroying suits left and right. And they right. couldn't keep up with 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is interesting. I hadn't heard that story before. That's interesting. Because I knew the, I mean, the armor, was, it was expensive to build those things. And then, yeah, if you it start. It was. They, they were, um, what do you call it, power form or something like that. It was mm-hmm. a, it was, it was a, um, it was a process where molds had to be made. And then they struck from the molds, and then they did all the painting and everything on it. They were very expensive. And, and like Ice Planet Zero, I'm, I mean, no, not in Ice Planet Zero. In, in the second half of the that I shot on the pilot, we must have destroyed 40 of those mm-hmm. suits. Right. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, at the end, I mean, they're getting shot left and right. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> left and right is absolutely correct. Um do you recall, was there a big premiere for it or did you watch it at home or when it was all, I mean, you tell me a little bit about post. I mean, you said Richard sort of cut his stuff, but then you supervised, you turned in your director's cut. Um, what was post like, particularly given all the amount of optical work? And then do you remember sort of seeing the finished product at all? Yeah, I did. I don't think, I don't think we had a big premiere. I think we had a, I think we had a first showing at Universal. Okay. It wasn't at a big theater. Right. Or Pleased with the way it turned out? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's kind of bittersweet. I, I do remember that egotistically, I was a little dissatisfied because I didn't have a credit. Yeah, sure. And so going to see that picture uh, with a lot of people, with Richard Kohler's name up there mm-hmm. only was very hurtful it really was who is did rick was rick colby worked with in some capacity you remember rick colby oh sure yeah what, what was he was he ad on it or what was what did rick do because i know i remember when i talked to him about star trek you know obviously before he passed away he had mentioned that he had been involved with the galactica pilot i don't remember um, I remember Rick mostly from uh, Magnum. Oh, right, of course, yeah. Um, and that's where we really became friends. I, I don't remember if he was on the original. Are you surprised that after 40 years, somebody's calling you up and wants to talk to you about Galactica? I mean, like, that it endures, that it's this thing where, you know, people are still talking about it. I mean, you know, obviously you've worked on a lot of shows that have stood the test of time. You know, did you anticipate or are you surprised at all that Galactica is one of those? Yeah, yeah, I am. You know, the 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 older television shows just kind of meld into the distance, right. um, and there have been several. The Hulk mm-hmm. comes back again. Galactica yeah. comes back. There was another show. Who the heck was writing it? I thought it was another Galactica guy who was writing something about it. Beside you, and I don't remember. But you know, some of the older shows are, were pretty good, and they mm-hmm. were pretty uh, groundbreaking at the time. I don't know. I sort of feel like contemporary audiences, the divining line is sort of the, the dawn of nonlinear editing when things could start to be cut, you know, on an avid and there's a lot more edits that people <clears throat> get used to a, a sense of pacing that's different from the old shows. And it's harder to get a younger audience to look at some of the older stuff that it, they're just paced differently. And, and it was TV. It was TV. Yeah. And you said you said it earlier. Yeah. And now TV is movies. You know, it's funny, you did a show after that called Time Express, and every time I've ever brought that show up, nobody believes it existed. I said, no, there was this, like, short-lived six episodes or something, Vincent Price on a train that went back in time, and it's like, no, that you're making that up, that never exists. I said, <laughs> I said there was really a show on CBS called Time Express, and I saw that you had done it, and I was like, I would, there you go. Yeah, I did the pilot, and, <laughs> and we only did four, I think. Right. Six. What, yeah. um... 
what was Vincent Price like at that point in his career? No, he was he was great. Well, Vincent and and um, his wife, his wife, right? Um, they were a kick. They were really a kick, and uh, I, I enjoy I enjoyed both of them. I mean, I I enjoy working with these legends. Yeah, sure. Must, you know, I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I'm I am one of the one of the guys who doesn't mind admitting that I was starstruck. Right. You know, um, all along the way, every time I worked with the greats, and uh, I remember once I was doing a Bionic Woman, and um, oh, what's his name? Oh shoot, he was the star of. F Troop. Oh uh, yeah, I remember F Troop. I'm trying to remember. Uh, God, oh, I can't believe you're going to stump me on this. Oh darn it! Was and, it was it the young guy who was klutzy, or no, was it, the his, older, it was the, the older? Oh yeah. Um, oh, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he, he, they, we wanted to do a bionic woman, and everybody said you better go over and meet him. Uh, oh, oh, his name just went right through my mind. <laughs> Tuck Tucker. Okay. Of course, okay. Tucker. Oh, yeah. Okay. 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 And so... Now um, we can move on. <laughs> I, I went over. He lived in, in, in um, Studio City on the other side of Burbank, one of the two, a little small house. And I went over to meet Tuck, uh, Mr. Tucker. And, and, and I walk in. I said, Mr. Tucker, I'm Alan Levy. And he said, it's Tuck. I said, you got it. And we sat there and we chatted. And, and he was a very nice man. Drink in hand and just lovely. And he, before I left, he said, listen, I, I've, I've got to tell you this. Uh, I have an assistant who follows me around all day, and he holds my glass of bourbon. Now, I will take a sip of bourbon all day long, many sips. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. At 5 o'clock at night, I won't be able to say a word. <laughs> at 5 minutes to 5, I'm perfect. Okay? And I said, okay, you got it. Well, goddamn, that happened twice. At 5 or 10 or 15 minutes to 5, I would be shooting something. And at 5 o'clock, I'd say, where's Tuck? And they said, uh, he's out. He, he had to go home. He's gone. <laughs> and I just loved that. I mean, it was just kind of a, a wonderful thing. Um, I was, uh, what was I doing? Um, I was doing a movie of the week. A Western and um, names. I have a terrible time with names because he's still a friend. Um, white-haired, uh, older guy. His daughter is the star of um, Spielberg's thing about uh, um, the dinosaurs. Oh, Ron Howard. Wait, no, no, no. Oh, besides, the, Bryce she, This he's, guy's daughter was is the star was the star of that show. Of, of his daughter was the star of the show. The show about dinosaurs. Yeah, the, his movie. Is it Jurassic Park? Yeah. yeah. Oh, um, um, uh, T. Leone, uh, the first one, the new one. It wasn't T. Leone. Oh, she was in the third one, I think. Yeah, no. Oh, Laura Dern. Bruce Dern. Yeah, oh, Bruce. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I get backwards. I you backwards. <laughs> I'm working with Bruce, and he said the same thing to me. He said, "You know what? I'm good until eleven o'clock at night." Well, I'm shooting at the Sable Ranch, way no, out. I know Sable. I shot there. Yeah. And <laughs> it's not and, there anymore. You heard it burnt down in the fire. Did it? Yeah, and those those fires last year took out the whole Sable Ranch. Oh shit! Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Anyway, we're shooting out there, and we're shooting late. And um, I had a shot with him uh, at about twenty to eleven, and then I went for a close up on. He was on horseback, went for a close up, and they had to they had to move a big light around for some backlight on him or something. And at eleven, about five minutes after eleven, I, I sent the DP over. I mean, the, uh, my AD over, 
And he comes back and he said, I think you better come over with me. And there's a chair and there was a lump underneath a blanket. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty terrible. And I pulled it off and I said, Bruce. And he goes, what time is it? And I said, it's five after 11. And he says, we'll have to shoot it tomorrow night. And that was it. <laughs> 11 o'clock, he was gone. Oh, my God. Oh. That is, you don't get stories like that anymore. <laughs> it's like, we're calling business affairs. You can't, we're going to get collect insurance on this. I'll tell you one of my favorite stories, and it wasn't, it's not Gene Berry. Um, I can't, can't remember the guy's name, damn it. And I tell this story all the time. It was in um, The Immigrants, and he's playing an old timer. I can't remember his name right now. Damn it. And we're playing the scene. He owned a, a, a big uh, line of shipping of, of, uh, of ships. Uh, and the two young stars had just started up their own shipping company. And the guy's name was Levy. And the, the older guy, it wasn't Gene Barry, damn it, is, it, it was anti-Semitic and also angry and pissed off that he was being challenged by this young, this young team. And there's a scene where they meet uh, at the wedding at the uh, Champagne Fountain. And I rehearsed the scene and I thought, okay, that's a rehearsal. I said, let's shoot it. So we shot it and I, I, I said, cut. And I just sat on, I was sitting on the dolly. And he said to me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll think of the name in a moment, Barry Sullivan. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. And so Barry looked at me and he said, um, Alan, what's wrong? And I said, Come here, Barry. And so we walked over to the side. And I said, Barry, there's a tension between you and Levy that comes out of anti-Semitism, as well as you young squirt, you're trying to take over my ownership of the world with my shipping company. And I didn't get that tension out of you. And he thought for a moment, and I said, what would you like to do? And he said, I would like for you to go back and roll the camera. <laughs> so... <laughs> I went back and rolled the camera, and it was like flowers. It was like roses. It was just, it smelt of such anti-Semitism and hatred, and, <laughs> and, and, and without being mean at right. all. And after it was, I, I cut, and I went up to Barry, and I shook his hand, or put my hand on him, or I don't remember. And I said, Barry, thank you so much. He said, oh, no. He said, I thank you. <laughs> oh, I love that. Oh, that's great. God, that's a great story. Well, you have been very generous with your time. I'm going to ask you one other question just because if I can slip it into the Buffy manuscript, I'm going to try. Any thoughts or remembrances of working on Buffy? I know it was towards the end of the show, seventh season. Any 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 thoughts about it? It was just, you know, it's just the gigs, you know, seven days on a show and sort of lost to the memory or was there anything unique about it or interesting? For you? I, I enjoyed the show. I, um, I enjoyed the, it was a different kind of a show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed the girls and I enjoyed working with them. Now, who was the, the, the white haired guy on the show? Oh, James Marsters, Spike. Yeah. Yeah. Spike. Yeah. Okay. James, James came to me and he said, he said, this is an unusual script in that it revolves around me. And he said, I don't get many like this. And he said, will you help me through it? Will you watch me? And I said, I'll be happy to, of course. I spent a lot of time with him in molding because he cried in a couple of scenes and he was very involved in the entire show. And it was a very good show for him. And I spent too much time with him. Mm. 
and um, I went way over almost every day with with in scenes with him. Right, right. And so uh, I talked to the producer afterwards, and he said, he said, you know, we're at the end of uh, we're at the end of the run. And uh, everybody's tightening down on on the uh, on, on the budgets. And he said, uh, "You did you performed a good show, and you did James a, a good favor, but you didn't do me a good favor." Mm-hmm. He said, "They came down on me for going." And he said, uh, "You know, if I get another show, I'll be happy to hire you, but uh, I can't ask you back for for Buffy because uh, someone's got to get the blame." Yeah, yeah. yeah. I said, "Okay." Yeah. At least he was honest. Huh? At least he was honest. Yeah, he was. He was honest because I was. Because right. I went to him yeah. afterwards, and I apologized because I know it. You know, they would call down at seven o'clock at night, and AD would say, "We got another two hours to go." Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was. It was not from that standpoint. It was not a happy situation. Yeah. I uh, the DP on that race tell I did a couple of movies with. I like Ray. He's, I like he, Ray. He's a he's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, nice, soft-spoken. Very, uh, very much so, yeah. Yeah. And he, he brought a much nicer look to the show uh, than the previous DP. I mean, he took over. I, I think he was he was shooting second-unit inserts, and maybe he even gaffed, but he, six, I guess he took over sixth and seventh season. It's a much better-looking show than it was before. And Ray, yeah, Ray's a great guy. I had worked with him before in another category. I thought it was Operator. Oh yeah, he, yeah. It was he, he's an operator. That's right. Yeah, I think he was because he operated for Dean Cudney for a long time, and yeah, he's an operator. You know what? Operator. That's what it was. It was the Invisible Woman. Oh, uh, the Dean Cudney did, and Ray Seller was my operator. Oh, okay, yeah, that's and right. That was that was done all live, all, live, live. He's a good operator. I mean, because I did smaller stuff with him, so he was operating Ray his own camera. And he was good. yeah, yeah. But I I liked him a lot. Yeah, yeah. That's right, because Dean Cundy, uh did that. I see Dean every once in a while. The gal who was the head writer on uh, Buffy. Oh, Marty Knoxon. Yeah, I really liked her a lot. And she's on another show right now. Yeah. I don't know if she has fun memories of my going over on that show or not. <laughs> but uh, she was a good gal. Yeah. Yeah, but she was running it that season. She was running the last two seasons. But Joss Whedon was less, less involved. Josh was off doing that other show. He was. Yeah, Firefly. Yeah. Firefly. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had the spinoff, the Angel spinoff going on at the same time, too. Right. Yeah. Well, no, that's interesting. Well, listen, you've been, like I say, very generous with your time. I really oh. appreciate it. These are great stories. And, uh, you know, you never know, you know, especially with somebody who has. Wednesday, Frank Sinatra guest stars as a retired detective. What do you want? I want the truth. Out to solve his last homicide with Magnum's help. So far, you're on a lousy investigation. Because Sinatra was, um, anyway, uh, number one, I heard all the stories about he would never do a take two. Yeah, right. And that he didn't want to rehearse, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're over in Hawaii, and Frank was coming over. We had already prepped the show, and Charles came to me, Charles Johnson. He was exec at that time and and said, listen, Frank's coming over. Mr. Sinatra is coming over, and it's Mr. Sinatra. (laughs) I said, okay. And we're going to take him up to his suite. Now, in one of the bedrooms, we have all of the shirts, the Hawaiian shirts laid out. And in the other room, we have all of the hats laid out. And he said, we're going to show him. And Charles said, don't say a word, okay? I said, I'm not going to say anything. He said, let Frank do it all. All right. So 
I said, fine. <laughs> no, I haven't got a problem with that. So we go up to the first room and there's a whole bunch of Hawaiian shirts left on there. And Frank walks up there and I'm a good four, four paces behind him standing in the room, just standing there. And he looks around and all of a sudden he turns around to me and he says, what do you think, kid? And Charles kind of went, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked up next to Frank and I said, Frank, I think that shirt is great for this scene, but the majority of it, this shirt here. Okay, where are the hats? Okay, so we walk into the next room and there's a whole bunch of hats. I did the same thing. I'm four or five paces behind him. And Frank looked at them all and he said, Okay, kid, did okay with the shirts. Come on up here. <laughs> and Charles is going, well, it went okay in the other room. And there were two different style hats. And I said, Frank, that's you. And this is for the funeral. And he put his arm around me and he said, kid, are you a drinking man? And I said, well, I guess I am. We went in the other room. And we were friends from then on. Oh, that's great. And it was just just terrific. That's great. And uh, <laughs> the first the first scene that I shot with Frank almost did it, though, however, because it was in a room that was, took place in New York City. He was commissioner of police and his granddaughter had been killed by somebody and he was resigning his commissionership to go try and find the killer of his granddaughter. And so there were probably, mm, I don't know, 40 50 policemen sitting in a, 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 a in, in a dinner hall on a big U table and with the podium up there. And Frank came out and gave his resignation speech. So I started I started uh, the camera on a, a glass of wine, very close. And as the first cop picked up the wine, I went with that and came around and you began to see a little bit of how many policemen were in the room and came all the way around the backside, saw the whole room, the podium, and then Frank walks out and starts to do a speech. I rehearsed it a dozen times because I kept saying to the operator, I said, whatever you do, don't fall off of this dolly. I don't care what happens, don't fall off the dolly. So I said, Frank, we're ready to go. Okay. And uh, so we start the shot and I said, action. And we came around. And as we're settling in, Frank walks out and he starts his speech and the operator falls off the dock. Ah. <laughs> and so I, I, I yelled, cut. And Frank looks, looks out, just looks out and stares out at me and said, who do you have on that camera, Stevie Wonder? <laughs> <laughs> and Denny, Denny, who was my cam first camera assistant, said, Mr. Sinatra, and he opened up the side of the camera and he pulled out about 15 feet of film. It was all good, but he was, and he held it up in the air. He said, Mr. Sinatra, we had a camera jam. It wasn't anybody's fault. And so Frank walked off the set. I went back and calmed Frank down. Yeah. And he, first thing he said to me, he said, did we really have a camera jam? And I said, Frank, you and I will never know. <laughs> And the last shot of the picture was he had found the found it. We were sitting up on we were sitting up on the. Uh, he had a colostomy at that time because oh. he he had endocrinitis or whatever that's called, and he was going to go back and have it taken care of afterwards. And we're sitting up there, and he finally finds he finally traces the killer down, and they have a fight on the roof at night of a thing, 
and he hits the guy and the guy goes backwards much farther than he thought he was going to and goes over the side. So he really didn't kill him. He just tried to capture him. And, and we're sitting there and there's, we had rehearsed the fight and we're sitting there on, on our chairs while they're lighting. And Frank leans over to me and he said, kid, um, I'm doing this fight. And I leaned over to him and I said, Frank, you're not doing this fight. He said, kid, I, you didn't hear me. I'm doing this fight. I said, Frank, you didn't hear me. You can do the close-ups. You're not doing the fight. And he leaned back to me and he said, kid, I'm doing the close-ups. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, I, oh, oh, I skipped that because I said to him, you do this fight, I'm calling your doctor. Oh. <laughs> and then he leaned over and he said, okay, kid, I'm doing the close-ups. But the last shot of the picture was, and this was a, a highlight of, of my career as far as being not knowing what to say or what to do. Uh, it was a, a, a difficult shot coming around the bed as he comes in the door and he sits down and he picks up the sits on his bed at, in, in, in Hawaii and he picks up the picture of his granddaughter, dolly into a close up of him. And he says, we got him, kid. We got him. And I said, cut. That's it. And he had to run to catch his airplane, his private jet. And I got up and I just went over to thank him. And he gets up off the bed and comes toward me. He gives me a huge hug and a kiss on the cheek. And he whispered to me, kid, I want you to know you're only the second director I've ever let direct me. Now, I was not going to say who was the, the other one. <laughs> but that's, that has stuck in my mind forever. It was just marvelous. Oh, my God. That's we a had great so story. much fun together. He's, he was great. He was great. Um, did you stay in touch at all after that? Or is we did until, until he began to not remember anything mm -hmm. about anything. Right, sure, sure. Um, you know, he, he did the show because he, he liked Tom. Right. And because um, uh, there were other connections on the show right. that, that he wanted to do. And Larry Manetti was like his godson. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah. so uh, Larry had always said to him, you want to do the show? I'll get you on the show. You know, so I like, think I can pull some strings. <laughs> finally he did, but that was a, a remarkable. Everybody on the show was just flipped. How could you not be? I mean, that's huge. I mean, God, it was Frank huge. Sinatra. Yeah. Great. See, I promised you a great Frank Sinatra story, but not only that, I love the story about um, when his parents came to set and what a mensch Lauren Green was to them. What a great, yeah. what a great story. Um, and well, I remember just, him telling that story uh, when we had dinner that one time. Yeah, that was it such was a nice cool. evening. Yeah. We had done a 40th anniversary tribute to Battlestar Galactic at WonderCon. Right. And uh, we went to dinner at Morton's afterwards with, I think it was Herb Jefferson Jr. and Terry McDonald, Alan Levy, and his wonderful wife, Sandra Curry. And we brought Dave Rogers, who's a big original yeah. actor fan, yourself, myself. And, and that was such a wonderful It was one of the night. wonderful, wonderful convention memories that I have. It was so nice. And uh, thanks for that, because it, uh, oh, it was very it, cool. It was my pleasure. And I love when we do things like this to share uh, to share it with people of a similar mindset, because of course, you know, I go back to being a young middle school person watching Galactica right. and to be sitting, you know, having a steak dinner that we're treating them to uh, with uh, these people who created our childhood. Yeah. It's really special. And that was a very, very special uh, evening for all of us. Um, and uh, 
you know, Alan was just is just such a class act with such great stories. And I would say as, as people who work in the industry now, we stand on the shoulders of, of giants. And Absolutely. so I feel it's really important to to pay the respect and the love and, and learn from the people who were making television for us before um, uh, we we were old, you know, got to the point where we were making TV. I mean, I, I remember when I was doing a show called Agent X for TNT and Rod Holcomb was one of our directors, of course, Rod had done one of the first Bigfoot episodes of Six Million Dollar Man and mm-hmm. had done a couple episodes, including the Fred Astaire episode of Battlestar Galactica. And so between takes, we'd always sit in Video Village and, you know, it would be like cut. And then we'd be setting up for the next shot. Said, OK, let's talk about what was Fred Astaire really like? Oh and then, my goodness. you know, and this, and there's like, oh, let's talk about Bigfoot, you know. And then our lead, Jeff Hefner, found out he directed the Bigfoot episode. It's like, what are you guys talking about, Bigfoot? So he directed the Bigfoot episode of, of Six Million Dollar Man and Jack goes, no way. And then he wanted to know all oh about it. So, I mean, it's like it, 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 it hasn't changed that much from the playground as kids to what we do now. Well, and, and remember, uh, TV production was way different back then, because yeah. certainly at Universal, it was a factory That's and they, they just it. churned them out. And it wasn't, uh, you know, they were lucky to get any artistic representation in these productions at all. Because they had to do it so fast and uh, on way less budget than what would be considered today. Um, But they did an amazing job because they had to and they were good at it. So it's it's, it's, mm -hmm. no, I I just going to say because it's it's such a good contrast to, uh, you know, it's, you know, the the people who have and have not. And it's the people who have not that have to work harder and make it better. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because Galactica at the time was the most expensive show ever done for TV. It right. was it was like Star Trek, the motion picture uh, in the sense that it was, um, you know, not only was the pilot huge, but then at one million dollars an episode was a huge amount of money in 1978. Absolutely. And um, that was one of the reasons it was canceled. Because it was I think it was number 17. It was like one of the highest rated shows ever canceled because it was so expensive to yeah. produce. And that was one of the impetuses for Galactica 1980 to make a cheaper Galactica. Right. But then they programmed it in the children's hour, um, which was, uh, you know, Sundays at seven o'clock. So they had to dumb well, it down so much. We wanted it to be cheap, but we didn't want it to be cheap. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, look, I, I think this is part of the fun of the show is bringing people like Joe DeCosta, Bob Butler, Ralph Sinetsky, and I think Alan, um, you know, it's great, Alan Levy, to include him in, in that illustrious company. Absolutely. So thank you to Alan. I'm glad, Darren, you reminded me of that wonderful night uh, at WonderCon and Morton's uh, with the um, Galactica gang. And um, I want to thank uh, everybody uh, out there in listener land. Of course, our producers, uh, Natalie Miscali, Peter Holmstrom, our great sound mixer, Mark Rivera is mixing this episode. So thank you, Mark, uh, for the great job you do and, and how much you love the show and how much you put into it every week. We appreciate Absolutely. Phil Ritter, who oversees him and has been a mentor to him. And, uh, and who knows, we, we might actually do Star Trek next week. We might be back with an all new Star Maybe. Trek episode. Not promising anything. You never know. But, you know, as we say, we like to dip our toe into Star Trek adjacent and certainly Battlestar Galactica. You know, we talked in the past about how Space 1999 sort of filled that hole uh, after the animated series was canceled. And that you saw, oh, Space 1999 was the closest thing you had to new Star Trek. And then it was Galactica. Yeah. And then it was Star Trek again with Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. So it all came full circle. Indeed. And then, of course, to have somebody like Ron Moore 
uh, do the reimagination, but that's a story for a different time. Right. Okay. Well, uh, so uh, again, please follow us on uh, social and Glorious Trek and Glorious Trexperts. You can also follow the Trexperts Briefing Room at its own Twitter and Instagram feed at Trexperts Briefing Room and uh, on Facebook at uh, Inglorious Trek as well. So until next week, on behalf of Darren and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.